You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, MicroStrategy makes another $10 million bet on Bitcoin, even as cryptocurrencies continue to slide. Plus, NFT sales hitting a new low for the year. We will discuss. And subscribing to Snapchat, the social media company announcing a new monthly subscription to premium content. But what does premium content look like on Snap? And will customers pay $3.99 a month? Plus, Moderna co-founder Nubar Afayan will join us to talk about the future of Omicron-specific boosters and why he's taking on the fight against climate change. Meantime, Michael Saylor is doubling down on Bitcoin. MicroStrategy buying another 480 coins worth about $10 million at the height of the crypto market collapse. According to a filing from the SEC... MicroStrategy purchased the coins between May 3rd and June 28th for about $20,000 and $817 each. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld with us now to discuss, and not necessarily a surprise given our last interview with Michael, but still now even below 20K. It's so fascinating. I mean, the fact that you're getting this big whale buying at a time when no one really else is. And Emily, like you said, and you know this very well, he's a true believer, Michael Saylor. So maybe not surprising in this sense. But it is a little interesting if you look into the details. So this was MicroStrategy's smallest Bitcoin buy in over a year. And I mean, if you look at their entire hoard, MicroStrategy owns 129,000 Bitcoin in total at this per point. The average price for all of those purchases, it's $30,000. So MicroStrategy, it's well underwater on this bet. But Michael Saylor, I mean, he's known as the biggest corporate advocate of Bitcoin. And truly, I mean, his actions are backing that up. Whether that'll pay off remains to be seen. And clearly, that wasn't greeted as good news in the stock market. But I mean, he does stick to his word. So here's a clip from my interview with Saylor a couple of weeks ago. First question, any regrets? Take a listen to what he had to say. The bottom line is the Bitcoin strategy is 10x better than any other alternative. 
And so now I don't regret it. Uh, we've got $2.8 billion worth of Bitcoin on our balance sheet right now. And we feel like we're positioned well for when uh, the markets turn around. And our only other choice would be to give all the capital back to the shareholders, in which case we would have nothing. And we would be struggling uh, to get by without any assets. 10x better than any other alternative. He's thinking in the really, really, really long term. But even in the short term, how is Bitcoin standing up to altcoins and the alternatives out there? Well, if you look across the crypto ecosystem, I mean, a really crude way to think about Bitcoin is sort of as the Amazon or the Apple of the crypto sphere. I mean, this is sort of the biggest coin out there. It tends to move less than some of the other coins. And you definitely saw that today. I mean, uh, to borrow a phrase from Ed Ludlow, I think he said uh, flat as a floppy disk of Bitcoin <laughs> fell just three tenths of a percent. If you look at some of the altcoins, they're more like the speculative tech stocks out there, the high flyers. You saw Ether fall uh, uh, almost 5%, Solana even more than that. And this is what you typically see on the downside and the upside too. When Bitcoin moves higher, it the, it's the altcoins that lead the gains. And as we've learned over the past few months, the same is true on the downside. When you do have this big drawdown in Bitcoin, it tends to be even bigger out the risk curve. Well, and at the same time, you have the Bitcoin believers. You've got the folks who are never, ever going to give up on NFTs. And yet NFTs continuing to fall. I mean, you know, would you say we were, we're past the peak? It's a good question. I mean, just looking at the data, because you're going to get a thousand different opinions. But if you look at the data on OpenSea, that is the biggest NFT marketplace out there. This was a really shocking stat in a Bloomberg News article today. Sales volume has fallen 75% just since May. It's at the lowest level since July 2021. So I don't know. Perhaps some of the air is coming out of that NFT bubble. And whether this is, you know, approaching the bottom remains to be seen. But Emily, this is what a crypto winter looks like you tend to see a shakeout like this and you're clearly seeing it in nfts and altcoins and it is cold indeed now the deadline for u.s regulators to rule on graystale's campaign to convert its bitcoin trust into a spot etf is coming up what are we expecting there I am laser focused on this decision. I cover crypto, I cover ETFs. Now we have them coming full circle. So the consensus in both industries is that this is going to be a denial, that the SEC isn't going to allow Grayscale to convert its trust into a physically backed ETF. That isn't a structure that exists in the US. But I crunched the numbers on what that would actually mean for Grayscale if this fund were to convert into an ETF. Again, not the base case. Right now, as a trust, it's able to charge 2%. So if you times that, by the assets under management, about $13 billion. That works out to over $230 million in revenue for Grayscale per year as a trust. But if it converts to an ETF, 2% is very, very high for an ETF. You're almost never going to see that. If you look at the most expensive or one of the most expensive crypto ETFs out there, it charges a fee of less than 1%. So even if they get a win in the next week, I mean, that would mean hundreds of millions of dollars lost in revenue. And Emily, we're in a crypto winter. All right, Katie, what are you going to be watching tomorrow? Tomorrow, I mean, I'm right back to the fundamentals of the U.S. economy. I'm looking at core PCE figures, but as we've learned, Bitcoin tends to move along with stocks, and stocks are absolutely moving with inflation. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld, thank you for telling us what's on your radar. All right. Coming up, the co-founder of Moderna, Nubara Fayan, joins me next as the pandemic moves into yet another phase. Plus, how the newest ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court could impact climate change and 
his portfolio. That is all next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. On Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to issue another major decision. This one will have a big impact on climate change, specifically the power the U.S. government has to tell companies to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. As we wait for the decision, many tech companies have been taking it upon themselves to reduce their carbon footprints. Indigo Agriculture is one such company helping fight climate change with carbon removal technologies backed by the venture capital firm Flagship Pioneering, which might sound familiar to you because the CEO of Flagship, Nubara Fan, has been on our show many times. He is also the co-founder of Moderna. Nubar, it's great to talk to you again. I want to talk to you about Indigo Agriculture, their carbon farming program. What is the dent you expect this or hope uh, this will make in the climate fight? Emily, thanks for having me. This is a very exciting day today because it's really the first time that a certified carbon credit has been issued against uh, uh, basically output from farmers. And while today we announced 20,000 tons of, of, of certified carbon uh, being captured, uh, that really can scale and can scale rapidly, we think. Uh, and so it really is a proof point. Um, there's, there's probably several orders of magnitude, 100, 1,000 fold more that can be expected from this. And I think that agriculture is kind of a, a, a very interesting way to think about uh, carb storing, capturing and storing carbon and uh, creating returns for farmers, which is also a very important uh, uh, kind of part of the circular economy aspect of this. So we're bracing for yet another Supreme Court ruling, this one on whether the EPA has the authority to tell companies to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. What are you bracing for here and how could this impact your new venture? Well, I mean, certainly I think that, that, that we see a lot of mixed signals as when it comes to how consistently we want to, 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 to make sure that corporations and, and other 
entities are being responsible for their carbon footprint. Certainly the, the, the momentum has been in favor of more and more responsibility, but I think that regulation aside, the vast majority of companies are moving down a path where they're taking it upon themselves. Today's announcement by Indigo involves 11 major brands that actually have stepped up and, and, and associated with the work that the farmers do, some $40 per ton of carbon, uh, which is twice what it was a year ago. And we think that these incentives that, that will drive the creation of these credits will be part of the solution. And I think corporations might be forced to do it, but they also may choose to do it because it's the right thing to do and it's scalable. Now, uh, regulatory advisors just recommended that shots from Moderna and Pfizer be updated to target Omicron. What are the next steps for Moderna here? And how will your concoction be different than what Pfizer has to offer? Well, the context switch is pretty sudden, but I think it's it's memorable for me, Emily, because at some level, we're talking about the health of the planet, and then we're also talking about the health of the inhabitants of the planet. So for us, it's really all the same thing from a point of view of the science and the innovation. Uh, specifically to your, to your question, clearly, we've been caught up in this battle for two years now between a virus and the, the, the tech, human technology to combat it. And as the virus adapts, we've had to adapt our own uh, vaccine to be able to stay ahead of it and provide the kind of immune protection. We showed at yesterday's hearing with the FDA that the data we're generating out of a bivalent, that is two different spike protein sequences in our new vaccines, uh, are a robust protection package for what we expect to be uh, what's coming up in the fall. So what we need to do is to work with the authorities making sure that we, we kind of uh, uh, put in place the, what will be the, the next vaccine that's going to be used. Uh, certainly yesterday's vote encouraged Omicron to be incorporated into that. And once that's done, we're ready to ramp up production and be ready by early fall to provide the vaccines needed for protection. I think a lot of people, as you know, Emily, are tired. I'm tired. Everybody's tired of this, of this pandemic. But the, the bad news is the virus doesn't get tired. And we're going to have to stay vigilant, however tired we get. We, we are tired, I agree. And also, you know, there are a lot of folks waiting on these boosters and guidance on boosters. It's, it's, it's been kind of confusing, the messaging from the U.S. government. You said early fall. Is that the soonest? You, like, like, when do you think Omicron-specific shots will be going into the arms of Americans? Ending working out with the FDA and other authorities the final uh, vaccine composition that we're going with. And there's a little bit of this that begins to look like early versions of what we've done with seasonal flu, where there's got to be a, a definition set on what the next vaccine looks like. But once that's done, we think the sooner that's done, the sooner we can get on. We're poised to manufacture uh, significant quantities. And, and like we're looking at as early in the fall as we can. You know, early September would be great, may well be, depending on when the go-ahead is given, uh, that will affect it. But but we certainly have planned for and are poised to be able to move very, very quickly. Now, COVID vaccines are starting to roll out for kids, and I'm curious how you think that campaign is going. We've seen a kind of a slow uh, vaccination campaign under, under pediatricians. What's it going to take to make parents less hesitant to get this done? Look, I think that it, it took a while to get to this point, which is unfortunate because during that time, people were exposed to any any number of conflicting points of view and, and everybody 
uh, uh, seems to have a view about any number of topics that relate to public health, even though there's public health professionals that I'd say are probably much more uh, uh, prepared to and, and qualified to to guide what it is we're doing as a population. I think it's gonna take a little bit of time for people to get the right information. The fact is rigorous testing has been done. The fact is that protecting the youngest kids from getting infected is not only important for their health, but the health of the people surrounding them and the people who wanna be with them. And so I think that overall, just like we're vaccinated for lots of other things, uh, we care about our kids' health, and this is a very important next step. The other thing you have to keep in mind, Emily, and again, this is, I think, getting lost in the information wars that seem to be going on, is that actually just getting COVID, let alone getting it over and over again, is from a long-term health standpoint, dangerous. And, right. and, and I think that we think of this as a cold, and we go, well, we get it every year, so big deal. There's no evidence that the way this disease plays out uh, quite the contrary. There's evidence that in some subset of people, several percent of the people, it has long-term effects. And I don't see that that's going to be different once enough young kids get this. So we have to be uh, less cavalier about it and do everything we can to prevent it, at least until we learn more about the disease. We just got a new headline that Pfizer and BioNTech are going to get an extra $3.2 billion from the United States for COVID vaccine development. Are you expecting more money for Moderna as well? I can't comment on that. All right, so let's talk about the national biodefense strategy. I'm so curious if you and flagship have spoken to the Biden administration about this and what the role of flagship could be there. You know, obviously the hope is that at some point this pandemic abates, but we will be facing other threats. So Emily, we, we have indirect contacts uh, or through a number of channels and I'd say that I'm happy to see more discussion happening about this whole notion of health security. This is something that we've talked about for three years. In fact, preceding the pandemic, we do think that we need to elevate our health to a matter of security, not just care. It's not enough that our health kind of is under attack and then we try to then do something about it. We have to get ahead of it. And health security, whether it's against pathogen threats uh, or against a lot of the slow pandemics that we are attacked by every day, whether that's cancer or Alzheimer's or obesity or any number of diseases, all of these are the same kind of threat that can take down our lives, take down our health, and we need to get ahead of it. Health security, biodefense, all of that is part of a comprehensive solution. And I certainly hope and expect that the kind of damage this pandemic has done will be at least converted into some long-term a uh, lasting value to society, just like major wars have led to significant kind of after effects that have been good for mankind. I expect that to be the case in this case through a more serious effort at preparedness and prevention. All right. Well, really appreciate all the work you are doing and your team on the front lines to keep us all safe and also now to fight climate change as well. Moderna co-founder, CEO, flagship pioneering, Nubar Afayan. Good to have you back.
The iconic iPhone turns 15 today. Steve Jobs introduced the revolutionary product back in 2007, changing the phone and app landscape forever and arguably the world. For more on this, I want to bring in Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, who of course covers all things Apple. It is hard to overstate, Mark, just how much uh, the iPhone has changed uh, a lot of things about this world. How do you assess the impact of this one particular product and the future? future impact on the Apple ecosystem. So I think the iPhone is so much more than just the iPhone, even for Apple. If you think about Apple, the company that exists today, and where they get all of their sales from, all their revenue from, and all the major elements of their business, it all stems from the iPhone. So the iPhone, you look at that, but what came from the iPhone? The iPad came from the iPhone, right? The App Store came from the iPhone. All their services, News Plus, TV Plus, Apple Arcade, uh, iCloud, all of those things work hand in hand with the iPhone. So none of their peripheral products, the Apple Watch, the AirPods, the Apple TV, those are all very iPhone reliant. So Apple is the iPhone company because the iPhone not only is their biggest seller, but it needed to exist for all of their other products to exist. So. Apple, you might as well rename them to iPhone Inc. Uh, from that standpoint. And obviously, you see what it's done for the world, right? People don't talk to each other in lines anymore, right? People can't focus on screens in a movie theater anymore, right? Everyone is glued to their phone constantly, and people can do anything from their phone. Whether it's an right. iPhone or a Samsung, it all stems from the iPhone. So where's the next 15 years of growth going to come from for Apple? Are we going to be using phones at all in 15 years? Is it going to be an AR headset? Is it going to be recurring revenue from services? I think there's always going to be a place for a handheld device, a product that you keep in your pocket, in your bag or whatnot. I think maybe you'll see people wean off of tablets and laptops more and the iPhone itself becomes sort of that quote unquote desktop computer or your home computer, or your laptop. And what was the phone sort of shifts to the wrist for the smartwatch and for the AR glasses. So I think the iPhone will have a place 15 years from now still, right? I still think there will be new iPhones in over a decade from now. But you'll see that sort of to use the Steve Jobs analogy the iPhone become uh, the truck, right? And the AR glasses and the watch become the car. So I still think there's a place for the phone long term. Interesting. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, who covers Apple and will be, hopefully, for much, if not all, of those next 15 years. Mark, thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Subscribing to Snapchat. That's right. Snap is launching a paid version of the widely used social media platform offering, quote, exclusive and experimental, they say, features. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner joins us now to discuss. So we've seen the struggles that like Netflix is having, for mm -hmm. example, with its subscription service. Why is Snap moving into this business? So you're noticing this both with Snap. You recall Twitter did this as well. I think this has to do with the fact that these are advertising companies. Um, it's been a tough year with everything happening with Apple and the tracking changes. And I think these companies that have mostly built an entire business around advertising are realizing that it's not always in their control, it's not always in their hands. It's good to have other forms of revenue, even if they're small, to kind of counterbalance that somewhat. And so I think that's why you're starting to see some of these social platforms start to you know, tinker with subscriptions. So what kind of premium content do I get for $3.99 a month? Yeah, it sounds pretty limited. Uh, from what I can tell, it sounds like you can, you know, similar things to, to Twitter again, you can change your app icon, you can prioritize certain messages, right? So maybe pin things uh, that you use regularly. So I don't think it's the kind of thing that the vast 
vast majority of people will want to use. But again, similar to Twitter, if you are a power user, if you're someone who does all or most of your communication on Snap, maybe this is you know something that's worth a couple bucks to. Are we going to see more strategies like this from other similar I, companies? I think so because of the advertising thing, right? I think if you're an advertising business, you have to sit around and look and say, what can we control? There's a lot that you can't, as we've learned from the pandemic, as we've learned from Apple. And so I think you know you're going to see the the Facebooks and others of the world. Maybe it's not subscriptions, but maybe it's commerce or, or other types hmm. of revenue streams beyond advertising. So paying for certain features, essentially. Yeah, I mean you heard Mark Zuckerberg last week talk about the metaverse and how he wants people to you know shop and, and buy clothes for their avatar. Like that's not advertising in the way we think of with with Meta or Facebook. It's a different kind of revenue, but it, I think it all aligns. Are people going to be paying for clothes for their avatars? Is that going to be a big said so. I know he said, he so, said so, so, but do you happen. believe him? Um, I believe that people will pay things. Yes, I believe people will buy things for the avatar. I don't know if um, it will be widely used by people, at least early on, right? If, if suddenly you and I are having this interview in the metaverse someday and I'm working from home and you're working from home, <laughs> like I'm probably going to want to wear something a little nicer than what I have here, so maybe I would I would have Bloomberg ex expense that okay, for Okay, that's an interesting use case. I'll yeah. think about it. All right, yeah. Kurt Wagner, Thanks. thank you. Well, after two years of virtual conferences, HPE's annual Edge to Cloud conference is back in person in Las Vegas. More than 8,000 people attended to hear about the latest innovations as the company leans into its everything-as-a-service business strategy. HPE CEO Antonio Neri joins us now exclusively to bring us the latest from Vegas. Antonio, it's great to have you back with us. So, look, it seems like the everything on people's minds now is the economy. What are you hearing? hearing from customers, how worried are they? And how is this potentially impending recession impacting them? Well, Emily, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a great day to be here with customers and partners. As you said, we have more than 8,000 attendees. And it has been an amazing couple of days where the energy is unbelievable. It shows that being together, right, is, uh, is unique. And one feedback I got from customers this, this time around feels totally different. And there's a, so, a sense of excitement. And what we hear from them uh, is that the power of digital transformation is accelerating and they need solutions to accelerate inside from the data. Obviously, they are all concerned about what's happened next, but I think it's more a consumer phenomenon than an enterprise IT phenomenon. So impacting your outlook? I mean, do you think a recession is inevitable? I mean, you have to be planning for that scenario. Of course, we do base planning scenarios for what comes next. But I have to tell you, Emily, the demand that we continue to see the market is incredibly strong. And this event is a catalyst to continue with that momentum. We showcase amazing innovation and delivering on that vision I shared three years ago, by the way, when it was the last discovered here in Vegas, that we can offer everything as a service from edge to cloud. But uh, as I think about the mega trends, right, related to the need to connect, the need to deliver a cloud experience for all your loads and data, the need to extract insights. You know, I keep saying, you know, we are data rich but insight poor and ultimately be able to consume IT in a more flexible way, that's accelerating. That's why I'm more positive about the IT spend than obviously the consumer spend. 
You've got cloud providers out there fighting for industries and companies that haven't yet moved their data to the cloud. Which companies are these and how does HPE win their business? Well, our strategy from the get-go was to provide a hybrid experience for all your loads and data. And that's now very clear. When you talk to customers and partners, they tell you the world is hybrid. At the same time, digital transformation is all about a journey to drive a data-first modernization. And data has gravity and has tremendous value, more value than ever we managed, imagined before. So what customers are going through is a multi-generational IT journey, but ultimately they need the hybrid experience. And so as customers think about compliance issues, regulatory issues, obviously cyber issues, and cost, they realize they need a platform to be able to conduct their business uh, across wherever those wallets and data live. And HP GreenLake is the beating heart of our strategy, and they realize they can live in a multi-cloud world whatever public cloud environment they use, but also complement with an amazing set of solutions on-prem and more and more at the edge. I think it's fair to recognize, uh, Emily, that 70% of the data is actually outside the public cloud, 50% sits at the edge, and more than 30% of that data needs to be processed real time, and that's the opportunity in front of us. HPE is one of the largest companies that has moved its headquarters from Silicon Valley to Texas, and it really looks like we're seeing an inflection point in American social and political history right now. What do you have to say to employees who might be upset uh, that they've now moved to Texas and they can't access an abortion? Well, first of all, we decided to move our headquarters to Texas a couple of years back during the pandemic because I was in the process of building a state-of-the-art site for our Houston-based employees. And as I think about the ability to attract and retain talent, I thought the opportunity to create two very amazing sites. One is the San Jose, where a lot of our thought leadership takes place, and one is in Houston, Texas, where a lot of the operational and back office takes place. But at the same time, you know, when you talk about these social challenges, listen, Emily, I'm an immigrant that have been living now in the United States for uh, more than 23 years. And I have to tell you, I'm incredibly disappointed. This is not, you know, politics is not about a specific state or the other. But when we saw what we saw last, last week, uh, we as a company felt compelled to stand up and, and side by the women choice, meaning giving them the choice uh, what is right. And ultimately, as a company, we offer amazing benefits where we actually pay for all the travels and the medical needs that they have if they decide to make their choice. Have you had any reconsiderations about HPE's own decision in light of the, the changes to the social and political landscape? Are you hearing anything from employees who made that choice to move and now, you know, are reconsidering? No, not at all. Remember, we're a global company, Emily. I do business in 172 countries. I have 60,000 team members all over the world. Uh, and we encourage constructive feedback. And obviously, we want to hear their voices. But at the same time, we, we tell them, uh, go to the booth and vote. Vote what you think is the right thing based on your view of the issues. And we understand that sometimes we run into polarized views, 
But at the same time, we cannot address every individual issues. Uh, again, because whether it's one thing in the United States, you also realize we also do business in the rest of the world. But what we stand up is what is core to our purpose and value. As you recall, our purpose to advance the way we all live and work, and we need to be a force for good. And that's myself as a leader of this company. I guide myself every single day. Right. I'm sure you also have employees who want to move from California to Texas as well. It works both ways. HPE CEO Antonio Neri from your users conference in Las Vegas. Thank you so much for stopping by. Coming up, we are going to get a feel for institutional sentiment about crypto and DeFi. Falcon X CEO Raghu Yarlagata coming up with me next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. for our crypto report and losses deepen with popular DeFi tokens like Solana and Avalanche Avalanche falling more than sector bellwether Bitcoin with all this where does institutional sentiment stand for more on that I want to bring in Raghu Yarlagata CEO of the crypto trading platform Falcon X which focuses on institutional investors so where is sentiment Raghu right now Good to be back, Emily. In terms of uh, institutional interest in the space in the short term, Emily, I mean, definitely there is uh, fear. Institutions are being very cautious. And by that, what I mean is they're not taking directional bets. Uh, institutions are focused on market neutral strategies like basis trade without taking directional bet. The second point that institutions are feeling is the idiosyncratic risk that is coming from the liquidation cascades that we've seen in the space for the last two months. That's definitely affecting crypto. And most of it, I think, is flushed through the system. But again, for another two to three weeks, uh, we got to be very careful as a segment. Last but not the least is the the correlation, the high correlation to uh, risk on assets, specifically high growth tech stocks. So uh, we think that that correlation is also going to continue for the next you know few quarters at the very least. But overall, if you look at the long term, 
we have seen the highest number of customers on board, highest activity on the platform, and that's to say that's bigger than Falcon X, and that's to say that institutional interest for the mid to long term on crypto and more broadly digital assets keeps to, uh, continues to be strong. Meantime, you've got MicroStrategy buying more Bitcoin. What do you make of the maximalist strategy versus other coins, other options out there? Yeah. So for a large part of 2021 and continuing into 2022 as well, we've seen a lot of institutions go beyond just Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, early part of 2020 and through 2020, uh, later part of 2020, definitely was all centered around Bitcoin. But most institutions diversified beyond uh, Bitcoin into Ethereum and some of the L1s as well. That said, the MicroStrategy's uh, you know, buy of $10 million, I think it's symbolic. It is a very strong signal, despite the market conditions, that they're willing to double down on that. And that is something that a lot of institutions are watching out because that some institutions consider that to be a systemic risk if MicroStrategy rethinks that decision. So that signal is creating very good sentiment in the market. How is global sentiment evolving? For example, how is it different in the US versus Hong Kong versus, let's say, Australia? The interesting part is uh, we are actually over the last month or two months, Emily, we're seeing a big divergence between different markets. For example, US is definitely trending towards a much more cautious side. Asia, not as cautious as US, which means they're still exploring uh, you know, altcoins. But more broadly over the last one month, um, institutions are not taking directional bets in that all the price movements that we are seeing are largely stemming from the retail side of the equation. So U.S. is, uh, in summary, U.S. is tending towards the more conservative side. Asia, slightly uh, more aggressive than the U.S., but holistically, as a space, institutions are being very cautious. Now, you recently raised $150 million in a new round of funding, $8 billion valuation. And as I understand it, this funding came together in just a couple of weeks. How did you manage to pull this off in, like, you know, a very dismal market? <laughs> the market conditions in 2022 are very different, uh, Emily, to your point. Uh, yes, this is a very recent round, as recent as uh, about two, three weeks back. And again, the big hypothesis that us and some of the highest quality investors for growth stage are seeing right now, and we're seeing data to prove this hypothesis. The hypothesis is that crypto for the first time objectively proved that you can run full stack financial services, whether it's trading, banking, credit, clearing, all of these services 24-7, truly globally and truly elastically. No company, no country so far has objectively proved that that can be possible. And crypto has done this at a trillion dollar scale. Now, that is what we see in terms of the future of finance to be, right? I mean, a lot of world's value is going to be tokenized. We are actually seeing the data underneath that. As a result, despite the very tough market conditions, Q1, we've remained profitable as a company. Q1, we onboarded the highest number of customers. And Q1, we had the highest engagement in the platform. And that actually is because of the bigger thing at play, which is the digital asset transformation. We think equities and fixed income markets in the next five to 10 years are going to be tokenized as well. And institutions want to play in that tokenized world. I have to ask where you stand in this debate. Are you a maximalist? Are you more of an Ethereum, other coin kind of guy? <laughs> I do see, you know, blockchains to be 
you know, in some business constructs, you can compare them to marketplaces. Any marketplace has economies of scale and network effects. Bitcoin undoubtedly has the biggest network effects, you know, compared to any other, you know, cryptocurrency. But that being said, I don't think Bitcoin alone will cater to every single uh, use case that's out there. So definitely, I do think the world is bigger than Bitcoin, but I don't think it is 5,000 tokens either. So it's going to be a head-heavy equation with like, you know, 510 getting the lead in a meaningfully large way. All right, Raghu Yarlagada, CEO of Falcon X. Thank you for sharing you. your position with us. Let's get back to the markets on a largely flat day. Investors and consumers just waiting to see if prices will come down and a recession will be avoided. For more now, I'm joined by Betterment CEO Sarah Levy. And Sarah, I know that many of your customers are affluent millennials who've got, you know, a little bit of, of, of money in the bank, some assets to move around. How are you advising them at this time? So, you know, it's interesting because philosophically, we have always believed in long-term diversification. And so, you know, we, we attract a client base that believes in that philosophy and sort of stays the course. So in general, our advice is stay the course. And I think in some ways we do our best in this sort of economy, um, in this sort of volatile market, because tech smart technology is a huge part of the value proposition that we offer. Betterment was actually founded during a downturn. What comparisons do you see between then and now? Well, it's interesting, you know, some would say better to be lucky than smart, right? So when, when Betterment launched, um, we it was a downturn. And so we were able to put some quick wins on the board for our customers. And I think that really holds true now as well. Um, you know, I know your last segment was on crypto and, and we're entering the crypto market. And I think there the similarity I would draw is where we are in the crypto space right now relative to where we were in the overall market um, a decade ago when we were founded. I know you're working on a crypto product for launch later this year. What's your take on the, the broader crypto volatility and, you know, Bitcoin at, at new lows? You know, our view is that crypto continues to be an asset class to play for the long term. And we think about the asset class as a whole rather than thinking about the individual stories. So is it, you know, Bitcoin or the rest of the coins kind of coming up behind? So our view is long-term diversification works in the in traditional finance and similarly works in crypto. And then from an advisory standpoint, you know, we believe this is not an all or nothing idea, but we're going to advise our clients to keep less than 5% of their portfolios in crypto crypto as a diversification play. We've reported that FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried is interested in buying Robinhood. What's your take on that? How, how does that change the game? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think particularly in 2021, um, self-directed trading got a lot of excitement. And I think some combination of crypto and options and single stocks, you know, folks thought that they were sort of smarter and, and more informed and that they could play the market in a really, you know, self-directed way. And I think that often ends badly. You know, in that market, we were preaching eat your vegetables while they were preaching, you know, here's a piece of cake. And I think now you come out on the other side and eat your vegetables feel you know, pretty good and pretty tried and true. So, you know, I think they're they're doing a variant of what we are. They're just doing it in self-directed, you know, investing, whereas we're doing it in a sort of buy and hold advisory uh, capacity. Is a recession inevitable in your view? And if so, when does it happen? 
You know, I, I don't like to prognosticate particularly on that. I mean, you know, I think the monetary policy right now um, that, that the government is putting forth is important to cool inflation. And I think that's really the number one objective. And, and threading the needle is really the key, um, you know, whether or not that needle is going to be thread between employment and inflation and, and interest rates um, is really going to dictate what happens in the markets. How do you thread that needle in portfolio, invest for basically either scenario? Right. Well, I think, again, you know, trying not to overreact. I mean, you know, we, for example, um, behaviorally don't nudge customers to make too many moves. And so when we think about the savings rate environment right now and that rate going up, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to put more cash and recommend more cash into people's portfolios. But again, these are going to be sort of modest changes at the margin because on average and over time, right, dollar cost averaging philosophically makes sense, um, you know, taking advantage of the tax tools that are available to capture some extra beta there. Um, so we think there, there's a lot of good in diversification, you know, while we're seeing this market volatility. All right. Sarah Levy, CEO of Betterment. Sarah, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We're going to be right back here tomorrow. We've got a number of great guests, including Clio Capital Sarah Kunz and the CEO of Peak to talk about the travel season ahead of the 4th of July holiday. Don't forget to check out our new podcast. Meantime, you can find it on the terminal, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere you get your podcast. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.